Well, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share some thoughts with you from this reading. Shall we just pray? Dear Lord, we do pray that you would speak to us this morning from your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. I was attracted to this passage because it seemed to me that it mixed both heaven and earth. But I've actually found it quite challenging to think that through. You see, I want my life to be integrated. I don't want to have separate compartments for my day-to-day life and my Christian life. It's been said that some Christians are so heavenly-minded as to be no earthly good. I rather think that this passage is about having our head in the clouds but our feet on the ground. And maybe this image uh, captures that to some extent. And I'd like to focus today just on three words. Thanks in verse 16, knowledge in verses 17 and 18, and power in verses 19 to 23. I'd like to start with power. It seems to me that our world is preoccupied with power. The war in Ukraine is about Russia exerting its military power on its neighbours. And I realise that there are historical issues involved, but I can't accept that it's right for one country to bolster its sense of security by destroying or subjugating its neighbour. I realise, of course, that I'm naive when it comes to history. Ukraine has been prominent in our news, but when Patrick Sugdeo from Barnabas Fund was in Adelaide early in April, he pointed out that Ukraine was just one of 57 armed conflicts around the world. So that's where one group of people tries to use power to subjugate another. But power is also a preoccupation in our societies. The 20th century French philosopher Michel Foucault was obsessed with the secret structures of power. He argued that behind every practice, every institution, and even behind language itself, lies power. And his goal was to unmask that power and thereby liberate its victims. The English writer, Douglas Murray, has been tracking some of this uh, in Western societies. In his book, The Madness of Crowds, he considers the identity politics of homosexuality, feminism, racism and transgenderism. In his book, The Strange Death of Europe, he considers the impact of massive immigration on, on Europe. And in The War of the, on the West, his latest book, he considers the culmination of these movements where many people in the West rubbish or denigrate their own society. He identifies the most prominent struggle nowadays is that of racism. Critical race theory developed over decades in academia, in the universities, with key advocates working to create a movement which would interpret almost everything in the world through the lens of race. And that's been bubbling away since the 1970s, but it boiled over with the death of George Floyd in the US in 2020. Murray notes that as horrible and callous was the death of George Floyd, there was no evidence to suggest that it was a deliberate racist assault. 
Nevertheless, it erupted in the Black Lives Matter movement, primarily in the US, but also overseas. Athletes took the knee to indicate opposition to racism and a refusal to honour their national anthem. Critical race theory claims that white people are inherently racist, whether they know it or not, and any attempt to deny being racist is simply dismissed as evidence of inherent racism. In the US, companies are striving to advertise their anti-racist credentials, and employees have been forced to do anti-racism training. So Coca-Cola employees have been forced to undergo training aimed at teaching them how to be less white. Schools are similarly teaching young children to feel guilty about being white. And these movements have touched Australia as well. There were Black Lives Matter protest marches even in Australia in June 2020. I think Australian footballers and even cricketers took the knee... And in September 2021, the ABC ran a series, The School That Tried to End Racism. Now, some of my relatives thought that this was a good idea, but I was rather disturbed. Because to me, there was no evidence that the school was a hotbed of racism, and yet the children were being taught to feel guilty about being white. It was as if the ABC was introducing critical race theory through emotional manipulation. Some places in the US are hotbeds of anti-racist riots. In 2020, Douglas Murray visited Portland, Oregon. He said that every federal building in the state was attacked or turned into a fortress. Almost every statue and public monument in the city had either been pulled down by the protesters or removed by the local authorities even that of Abraham Lincoln. There seems to be a madness tearing America apart. And you wonder what happened to Martin Luther King's dream that his children would one day live in a nation where they would not be judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. John McWhorter is a black African-American who recently wrote a book, Woke Racism, And in it he claims that the only way to understand this movement is as a dogmatic religion. You must abide by the orthodoxy and any contrary opinions must be silenced. Someone like McWhorter, a black American, expressing such views is then labelled as white or white on the inside. The battle over racism is just one of the dogmatic movements at play in our society today. There's the new feminism that considers that Germaine Greer is no longer a feminist because she doesn't agree 100% with the new dogma. There is transgenderism which demands affirmative treatment for children who claim to be in the wrong body and that can lead to things like uh, puberty blockers and even later on surgical intervention. And you mustn't question that form of treatment. Though Sweden and Finland, two of the most socially progressive countries, are backing away from this model. 
And so it goes on in ominous fulfilment of Foucault's theories. And I realise that all of this paints a very grim picture about our world's preoccupation with power. And it demonstrates why I was so challenged by Paul's words about power. Where he says that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. I felt I couldn't just gloss over those words. And so the question is, how are we going to understand them? And the answer I came up with, which may suit you or not, is that we see some of it. We don't see the heavenly realm. We don't see the final consummation except by faith. And you know, Jesus warned that there would be a great upheaval. There would be wars and rumours of wars, nation against nation, and that wasn't the end yet. And the book of Revelation presents us with images of a cosmic battle yet to be concluded. But what we do see is the demonstration of God's power in the resurrection. There's sufficient evidence to accept that as historical fact. And along with the crucifixion, this constitutes the cosmic event that changes everything. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, maybe we should be thinking about the resurrection like a keyhole. We can catch a glimpse of what lies behind what is in the heavenly realm, but that's all it is, a glimpse. And I think that Paul gives thanks for the Ephesian church because it demonstrates the power of God in action. Where he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I think someone has said that for Paul, the church was an outpost of the new humanity. It was characterised by faith and love. Faith is a trust in Jesus as saviour. It's a trust in his sacrificial death on the cross. It's a trust in his forgiveness. Having been forgiven by God, we can and should forgive others. Having been loved by God, we can and should love others. And that means that the usual divisions between people that are emphasised in identity politics are overcome. Or as Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And it struck me that the world's power is destructive, just look at Ukraine, divisive, look at the race riots, and even deceptive with all their fake news. Or as one journalist noted, instead of a relentless focus on pertinent facts, we have been overwhelmed by a postmodern focus on assumed motives and individual truths. And by contrast with that, God's power is creative think about the resurrection, unifying, think about the church, and truthful. 
And I wonder whether we really appreciate how important forgiveness is for our world. Because without forgiveness, past injustices can fester and demand vengeance. One of the examples which really strikes home to me is the history of Serbia. In the Battle of Kosovo back in 1389, the Serbian prince Lazar was killed and it was said that Kosovo became a land of mourners. Prince Lazar became a Serbian hero who was taught to children ever since. The Serbs tried to retrieve his remains first from the Ottomans and later from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. On around the 500th anniversary of the death of King Lazar, a Serbian zealot shot Archduke Franz Ferdinand and sparked off World War I. At around the 600th anniversary, Slobodan Milosevic managed to retrieve the remains which were then paraded around Serbia and he said, now we will get our revenge and that led to the Yugoslav War. How are these historical wrongs, perceived or actual, going to be resolved? If we go by an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we'll all end up blind and toothless. The current trend to tear down statues of past important people is another demonstration of an inability to forgive, to accept that these people in the past might have been flawed but they made an immense contribution. In The Madness of Crowds, Douglas Murray has reflected... I missed that slide. Douglas Murray has reflected on forgiveness. He points out that in an age of social media, if someone posts something and someone else copies it, then even if the original posting is deleted, it is there forever and it can be dredged up to ignore the original context and mood and used to demolish a person's character. How are we going to deal with the past? How are we going to find forgiveness? And in The War of the West, Murray has a reflection on gratitude. He observes that where people are dissatisfied with their lot, that ends up in resentment, and that means someone else is to blame and must recompense the victim. And so there's a desire to paint yourself as a victim. He talks about his good friend Roger Scruton. He says, in the last year of his life, the English philosopher Roger Scruton underwent a set of trials and misfortunes inflicted on him by others. The last thing he wrote was a reflection on that year of his life what he had been through and all the terrible things that had happened to him. But he said, and they were the last words he published before his death, coming close to death, you begin to know what life means and what it means is gratitude. Recently I finished reading uh, Eugene Peterson's book, The Pastor, in which he documents his life as a pastor He's the one who produced the version of the Bible called The Message. And he set himself to avoid the glitzy techniques for attracting large congregations. He didn't aim for success, but for caring for the people. Not entertainment, but worship. Not programs, but community. 
Each person was valued for themselves, not for what they might be able to contribute. And I think Peterson would echo Paul's comments in thanking God for his own church. And he writes, Men and women who are pastors in America today find that the vocation of pastor has been replaced by the strategies of religious entrepreneurs with business plans. I wonder if at the root of the problem is a cultural assumption that all leaders are people who get things done and make things happen. But while being a pastor certainly has some of these components, the pervasive element in our 2,000-year pastoral tradition is not someone who gets things done, but rather the person placed in the community to pay attention and call attention to what is going on right now between men and women, with one another and with God. This kingdom of God that is primarily local, relentlessly personal and prayerful without ceasing. And Peterson gives examples of the people who were welcomed into their church. And I was very taken with the example about Wayne and Claudia, who were atheists. But they wanted to bring their six children from various marriages to church to give them a moral foundation and they said they would come themselves. At the point in the service where they recited the creed, Wayne would start with, I believe, and then he'd stop. Peterson noted that after six months, Wayne said, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And it was ten months before Wayne recited the complete creed and soon after... (coughs) Both asked for baptism. A couple, of, a couple of years later, Claudia was diagnosed with aggressive breast cancer and within six weeks she was dead. Wayne lost his job and the bank foreclosed on his mortgage. The family was homeless, but various church families offered to put up members of the family as long as they needed For me, this was a demonstration of the church in action, like the church in Ephesus, demonstrating faith and love. And I think this is the power that the world needs to see. And I think we too can give thanks for the people with whom we worship. People with flaws, yes, like us, but people characterised by faith and love and hopefully forgiveness. We all know that God is working in each one of us. And so Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church is that they might continue to grow. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. I don't think we stand still in the Christian life. We need to grow. There's always more to understand, more to to appreciate, more to absorb, more to put into practice. It's a matter, as they say, of lifelong learning. We grow not just in knowledge of facts, but in knowledge of a person our saviour Jesus and even Paul 
reckoned that he had further to go when he said in Philippians 3, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining to what is head, I press on towards the goal to win the price for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I pray that that might be our goal as well.